Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, for giving us sober minds. Minds that are capable to receive your instruction and to grow. Father, we know that you are teaching us. We know that you are leading us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We thank you for that in Yeshua's name. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, you know, I've been doing little spot teachings here and there and praying about the next series because, you know, most of them I like to, to do a series either on a topic or what anything, taking one of the books of the Bible and just working through it verse by verse. And for some time, a number of people have come to me, number of people, and asked for me to teach on the epistle to the Galatians. And the reason why they're asking for this is that they're being challenged by maybe brothers and sisters in Messiah who, this is how it usually happens. You're talking, you meet someone, and they go and they hear that you are a believer. And, oh, what's the name of your congregation? Ahavat Yeshua. Ahavat Yeshua, what's that? Oh, that's a Messianic Jewish congregation. Oh, when do you guys meet? We, what time on Sunday do you meet? Well, we don't meet on Sunday. We meet on Saturday. Well, why do you meet on Saturday? It's the Shabbat. And we like to gather and observe the Sabbath and everything. And then they get quiet. Well, you know the Sabbath, that's Old Testament law. And it's been done away with. And that it says in the Galatians that the, that those who are dealing with the Torah, dealing with the law, are under a curse. And therefore, you know, you guys by Sabbath or dietary things or Moadim, the feast days, frankly, anything that's Jewish, people will sometimes, your brothers and sisters in Messiah will come at you. And Galatians is one of the books that are used to find little statements from Paul that seemingly on the surface seem to condemn the idea of having Torah in your life. And people will quote those verses. And some of our, most of us have dealt with this for a long time. Uh, the thing that's difficult is that some of the terms that Paul uses are they don't mean what you think they mean, and it takes time to explain culturally the context of what it means. And so we don't have a quick phrase when people throw out, well, you know, brother, we're not under the law. You know that. We're under the law. Well, I have learned to have some quick phrases so I can have the conversation of what these terms mean. Because under the law, which we're not going to get into today, but we'll eventually, Lord willing, get into what it really means. But I have learned to say things. To get people's attention. Like people confront me. Well, Pastor Ralph, you know, we're not under the law, the scripture says. And I go, are we above it? Huh? Are we above the law? See, because the interpretation that people give to being under the law, meaning that you have a responsibility and obligation to keep it. So their interpretation of the word under the law means that, hey, I'm no longer under obligation to teach it. So then I ask them, because they see, because of culture, under the law is such a bad term, right? So I go, are you above the law? Well, in our culture, being above the law is a bad term too. And what is the result of being above the law? That you do not have to keep the law. 
So both statements, under the law, above the law, carries the idea, people culturally saying that you don't have to keep any of the commandments or any of the laws. So you get their attention. So are you above the law? Um, um, well, um, well, no. Oh, well, maybe under the law doesn't mean what you think it means. Maybe it means something else. And maybe we need to dig into Scripture to understand its meaning so that when Paul dealt with the terminology, we understand what he was dealing with and know how to apply it correctly today when we hear the terms 2,000 years removed from Galatia. The whole those congregations who had a particular culture, a particular place, a particular time, certain people, and they had certain ideas and language that we as removed, we really do have to do a little work to try to understand the context these terms we use. Paul writes many times in a way that takes for granted that the people he's writing to understand what he's talking about. And here we come after 2,000 years of church history, go reading it, not paying any attention to the original meaning, and try to think it means what we think it means, and we find out that that's not the case when, as my brother Ben always says, keep reading. Keep reading. So anyway, that's what happens to a lot of us. I know this happens to me all the time. You know, people are like, wow, y'all meet on Saturday? Why do you do that? Don't you know the, the Sabbath was done away with Jesus? And, and, and I said, oh, and he went and replaced it with Sunday? That's another little quick phrase I say to get certain people's attention. Oh, we're not under obligation. Why are we under obligation to meet on Sunday then? If you're saying we're not under obligation to keep Shabbat, which the scripture so clearly talks about, but I tell you there's nowhere in scripture that commands you to keep the first day of the week. Nowhere. Now you can derive why you think it's important to meet on that day. And frankly, I believe people have liberty to meet on any day they choose to meet on. At Ahava, we don't say, sometimes people make the mistake and think that we, we say these words. Well, you know, we worship God on the right worship day. That's how people think we think. Well, we don't think that way. Because that's foreign thinking to us. You only worship God one day a week? Really? Do you kiss your wife one day a week? Is that what you do as well? I mean, this is the God who's created all things, and he only gets one day to be worshipped. Well, we know through Torah that worship was an everyday thing. People went to worship God all the time. There's no one day to worship God. That's foreign thinking to the scriptures. It had been a foreign thinking to go to Paul the Apostle. Well, Paul, tell me, what day is the one day we're supposed to worship God? And, and he's not paying attention to you because it's a Tuesday and he's worshiping God. <laughs> and he gets up and says, excuse me, what did you say? Oh, you hang out with Paul and you see every day, every morning, he gets up and worships God. And before the middle of the day, he worshiped God. And before the evening is over, he worshiped God. Oh, you read about Daniel, and you read about how he, even in captivity, 
turn towards Jerusalem three times a day to worship. Every day he did that, even when there were commands against doing it. When he weren't, wasn't supposed to do it. He said, oh, I'm being committed. There's no temple there right now. It was destroyed. But that is the place. And he would turn towards that place. See, these are some of the things that get thrown at us. And we have to study to show ourselves approved so we can respond to these things. So people do respond and they hear about how we live our lives and how we practice. And they think because of the way we live our lives, you know, here's a term that's used a lot. You guys are Judaizing. You're trying to make everybody Jews and you're taking the Torah and forcing people to keep Torah and you're Judaizing by doing that and God says that's wrong. Paul used that term. Okay, yes he did. But what did he mean by it? Did he mean what you think he means? I had a friend, pastor friend, I'd known for years, and we got into a debate concerning certain things like Shabbat and dietary issues and the Torah and the New Covenant. We got into a big debate. We're still friends, but we got into a big debate. And in the middle of the debate, he said, listen here, my friend. I want to let you know that in Jesus, I am free from all the commandments of God. Jesus is my Torah, he's my law. I am in him. And, I, and he set me free from that obligation of keeping the law. There's not one commandment that I'm required. All I got to do is believe in Jesus. I said, hmm. I said, can you do me a favor? He says, what? If you ever move into my neighborhood, let me know ahead of time. Because I want to buy extra locks for my door. I want to get security cameras. I want to make sure I have God some protection on my children. My spouse, I'm going to keep a good eye on her when you're around. Because, see, you say you don't follow any commandments at all. And so I can't trust you. That means you can steal from me. You can lie to me. You can covet my wife, covet my property. You can build an idol in your backyard and worship it. I really don't want you in my neighborhood, brother. Please go somewhere else, my brother. Don't move into my neighborhood because I would have to buy more guns to protect myself from you because you're a very dangerous person because you are without law. You are anti-law and you are a very dangerous person. And if that's what you believe by being in Jesus that's what he did for you. That you're now free to live your life any way that you choose to live. And he got my point. It caught his attention. He said, well, brother, that's not what I'm saying. Then what are you saying? Maybe you need to rephrase your statement a different way. Maybe you have accepted a philosophy that's not of the Lord. That's not based on positive things. Maybe you are following traditions that are not rooted in the word of God, but traditions by men. Now, let me say something about traditions before we get on to Galatians. Sometimes people will condemn you because of traditions. You know, traditions are bad things. You know, you're supposed to follow the spirit of the law, spirit of the Lord. 
Oh, don't have traditions. Traditions are bad. They're bad things. And I think it's funny when I hear people who, who are kind of anti-tradition. We don't have traditions. We don't follow traditions. And I always ask them little things. And again, these are quick answers to people to get them to think. Do y'all have a church service? Yes. What time does your church service meet? Oh, we meet at 11 o'clock every Sunday. Same place? Yes, same place. Really? How long is your service? Oh, we're about an hour and a half service. Hour and a half. Yep, yep, that's what we do. Do you have music at your service? Oh, yes, we always open with some praise music. We do. Really? Always. You always do that. He says, yes, that's what we do. Yes, what are you getting at? I said, so this is your practice. Yes, that's our practice. Could we call your practice your tradition? That you meet on 11 o'clock on Sunday at a certain time and you open up with praise and worship. You have an hour and a half service. And that's pretty much the flow of what you do every week. That is the tradition of your community. And that usually gets their attention as well. I said, look, the Bible doesn't say straight out that traditions are bad. In fact, let me read some things what it says about tradition. 1 Corinthians, 11, chapter 11, verse 2. Now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. Some translations say, keep the ordinances, but the word there is the same word that's used for traditions everywhere else. So he's literally saying, keep the traditions as I deliver them to you. This is Paul talking to Corinthians. Hey, guys, remember to keep the traditions as I deliver them to you. Let me give you another one. Second Thessalonians, verse 2 and 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. The epistles themselves are traditions. <laughs> or Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command, command, command you, brethren, command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which you received of us. Whoa. Whoa. Strong words. The people part of that community and the apostles came and said, this is how we, this is how we live. This is how we walk. This is what we do. This is our practice. This is our lifestyle. And they go, eh. I'm going to live any way I want to live. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to go against the leadership of the community. Because I don't believe in traditions at all. He says, mark them. Don't even have anything to do with them. See, there are traditions that are good. The traditions that are bad are those traditions that make void the word of God. Those traditions you need to avoid. In Matthew 15, 3, when Yeshua was being confronted about some of the practices that he and his disciples were doing, and accused Yeshua and his disciples for not keeping the tradition of the elders, but he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God by your tradition? Same thing in Mark 7, 
For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men. He talks about that. And he goes on and says, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Those are bad traditions. Mark 7.13, he says, Making the word of God of none effect through your traditions which you have de- which you have delivered and many such like things to you. Colossians 2.8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world and not after Messiah. So there's some traditions that are bad. I was listening to something on the radio there, on Christian radio. I hope I can find it because I want to see where this guy's going to go with this thing. Very popular Christian pastor. And he was doing a series on why do we do what we do? And he walked through verses about being rooted in the word of God and everything. I was like, I wonder where he's going to go with this. He was saying, you know, there are things that he said this. There are things that have come into the body of Messiah that are not rooted in scripture. And we got to, we need to, and he challenged people, you need to, to, to find those things and get it out. That if your church, your pastor is doing things that can't be backed up by the word of God, he said, you need to get out of it. Now, I'm not going to name what this ministry is, but I was familiar, I'm familiar with this ministry. And I'm familiar with some of their traditions and some of their customs. And so I'm wondering, how far is he going to go with this? I said, I got to find out how to, I'm going to write this guy. I'm going to get the address. I'm going to give him a few times to listen to him. I'm going to see if they change some of the things that are on their website for the holiday season of what they had on there. And I'm going to challenge him that maybe some of your traditions, you need to follow your own teaching. So this is important. Years ago, Daniel Juster had the leaders who come in. He taught on a teaching for several hours on culture. And one of the things he's taught about culture, he says, in culture, which pretty much can be summed up as all the things you do, what you eat, how you dress, what days of the week you observe, how you speak, how you greet, how you move, how you dance, all of that expresses your culture. Everybody has culture. Even the people who say they don't have culture have culture. Even the anti-culture people have culture. They have a culture of being anti-culture. They develop practices that are against whatever the prevailing culture is, but that is now their culture. We are against everything else. That's how we define who we are. And Dan says in every culture, there's good things, there are bad things, and there are neutral things. For example, there's a culture of food. And mostly, if it's in the framework of food, and we'll talk about that later today, whether you decide to fry it, bake it, saute it, that's your choice. It's neutral. And you'll find a scripture that says, you must fry your chicken. <laughs> no, you can bake your chicken. You can come other ways to cook your chicken. 
That's a neutral area. What spices you might decide to put on your chicken, that's a neutral area. Now, some of you may say, well, that's good. Well, yeah, I like certain food cooked a certain way, and that's a good thing to me. But frankly, that's neutral biblically. God doesn't say, thou must eat Thai food. I love Thai food. Some of you may not like the spiciness of Thai food. I do. I love it. But it's not a salvation issue. It's not a word of God issue. Some of you are like plain food. You're more European in your approach. And I don't mean Spain. I mean the other part of Europe where they have stuff that, frankly, I find to be tasteless because they don't use a lot of spices. But that's okay. You can do that. But in a culture that can be bad things, let's take some of the Asian culture, whether Chinese, Japanese, you know, and other countries, other places, other expressions of the ethnicities that dwell in that land. And you may enjoy the food and maybe even the clothing, but then you start to study the philosophical beliefs on how, who God is and what the world is. And you find some are into ancestry, ancestor worship. Or some believe in many gods. If you get into Hinduism, many, many gods. More than you can count. Well, those are bad things. Because the Torah says, you shall worship Yah and Yah alone, worship no other gods. It might be a beautiful culture. They may do it in a beautiful way. But it has some elements of bad. Not the whole culture. Those aspects of it. And he went on to show that in various things. And it was Dan's way. Dan has always been seeking to embrace people. Made space that, hey, there are a variety of people and cultures and expressions. And we can rejoice in that. Just like we would rejoice that God is a creator of the universe. And he has a lot of diversity and creativity in his creation. What if every only tree we had was an oak tree? That's it. Just oak trees. No, God has... Tons of different types of trees that look beautiful, especially in the fall when you have different trees and the leaves change at different colors and different times. What if they're all just one type of tree? Eh, kind of boring. God likes variety. Even look at us as humans, created in the image of God. And yet, just in this room, we see a diversity of appearance and look and expression. That's God. That's the way he is. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a good thing. So every culture has something that can be gleaned from. And you don't just point a culture out. Greek culture is bad. French culture is bad. No, that's not true. Are there things in Greek culture that are wrong? Well, yeah, if you study it now, you can find bad things. But you can find a lot of good things. People say, what about Jewish culture? And sometimes in Messianic Judaism, we don't want to say anything negative about Jewish culture. Okay, you have a right to say that? Yeah, I think I've been here long enough that I have a right to say it. And Dan said it. Dan says, well, there are things in Jewish culture that are not good. 
that are bad. If you go getting into the Zohar and the mysticism, you will find superstitions and practices that are against the Torah. Magical things that you can do. And that's not a good thing. My wife and I was talking recently about some of the symbolism that you can find within Judaism. Just because it's Jewish doesn't mean it's kosher. You must discern from the word of God. If you were to wholeheartedly embrace all of Judaism, you would have to kick Yeshua to the curve. Because traditional Judaism rejects Yeshua as the Messiah. And they have stories about him that were unbelievable. They acknowledge that he did things, that he had power to do things, but they said the way he did it, he snuck to the temple and he he uh, heard the name of God mentioned uh, by the priest and then he sewed that into his skin so he could carry it out so he wouldn't forget it and he pulled it out and he read it and now he knew the name of God and the way he did his miracles, he went around using the name of God. A lot of you didn't know that that's Talmudic teaching, but it's there. Small portion, but it's there. That's not good. But Dan also said, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Much in every way, as it says in Romans. Because unto the Jewish people were given the covenants and the promises and the Torah and the word of God and all the promises associated. Yeshua himself said to a Samaritan woman, we Jews know who we worship. We know, because salvation is of the Jews. Whoa. Some people wouldn't like to hear that, but it came out of Yeshua's mouth. So there are traditions that are good, and there are traditions that are bad. We would expect with Judaism that there would be more traditions that are good because the covenants and the promise and the teachings and all the things that have been given to them. There's a term we use called halacha. It's a Jewish term. It comes out of rabbinical Judaism. Halacha. It literally means the way you go. The way you go. That's what halacha means. The way you go. One way of summarizing, it's how you do things. How you walk, how you talk, what you eat, what you don't eat. What do you do when you wake up? I mean, if you study... Orthodox Judaism, it gets into the minute details of every aspect of your life. The halacha for Orthodox Judaism is based on the Talmud. The Talmud is a set of writings. First, what's called the Mishnah, which is almost like a, if we look at it from a legal aspect, it's a legal statement about what you are to do or not to do. Then you have what's called the Gemara, which I like to view as how they came to that conclusion. It's commentary. It's different rabbis. Even put in there are rabbis who disagree with the final statement. It's a collection of all the arguments and debates that people have and over the one statement. And in Orthodox Judaism, this is the primary structure of study. Not Torah. But Talmud, which has a lot of Torah in it, but that is the structure. And that is the basis for halakha for Orthodox Judaism, 
of telling you what you're to do and what you're not to do. That's how the traditions are developed. Now, people say, what about you guys? Well, as I said, there's no way in a Messianic Judaism could we fully embrace the Talmud. But we do understand that the Talmud is the tradition that's been passed down, and within the Talmud are good things. And there are expressions of practice that have been captured that date way back to things that were being done even in Yeshua's day. And some of those things are good, and some of those things are not good. The traditions that are not good made the word of God void. But there were traditions that were good that Yeshua himself kept and walked out and practiced. So that's something we have to, we have to wrestle with that. We don't, with blinders, go in and say, we're going to embrace the Talmud. Nor do we go the other way and say, oh, there's nothing good there. We're going to throw it away and wash it away. When it's the very fabric of the Jewish community that we want to reach for Yeshua. We have to have some understanding of these traditions, these practices, and how to work with them. So when it comes to us and what we embrace in our community, it is through what I like to call New Covenant Eyes that we we approach Torah. We definitely believe that Torah is central to the New Covenant because the Scripture says so. I will write my law upon your hearts and hurt your mind. That's what God said he would do. But he also says, I will make a New Covenant Lo, not like the one I made before. And sometimes in messianic circles, we push that under the rug. Because we're so excited about Torah and defending Torah. We get so much attack for Torah that we want to defend it. That we forget that God himself says, I'm making a new covenant not like the one I made before which you broke. There is some transition, there's some change that is taking place in how the Torah is applied in the new covenant versus when that covenant was made under Moses. The main one is that it's in your heart. It's in your mind. He's your God. You are his people. He will forgive you. That's the main thrust of that new covenant. Torah dwells inside of you now. Not just decorated on the walls of your house. But inside, covering your steps by the Ruach, by the Spirit. That's the new covenant thing. But we have to look at it through the reality that the Mashiach has come. Because it changes the way you live. I've always said, what would happen right now if every Orthodox Jew woke up and receive the revelation that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They just woke up, and there it is. What would happen in the Orthodox community? There would be change. Their view of the Goyim who've embraced Yeshua would change. Their view of some of their practices will be tested. There would be a change. Well, in Messianic Judaism, that's part of our struggle, that we have the reality that the Mashiach has come. And so we realize that when it comes to binding and loosing, 
a terminology you've heard before. You, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that's usually heard more among charismatics who can really cast out demons. And I'll be honest with you, that verse has nothing to do with casting out demons. The other verses that deal with demons, unless you bind a strong man, you can't do anything. That's a demonic thing. you got to deal with that demon who has control. Bind that strong man so you can get people released. But the binding and loosing that is used in Scripture, that Yeshua promised to his disciples, has to do with halakha. When something is bound, you are required to do it. When something is loose, you're not under obligation to do it. Now, up until that point, Yeshua said to his disciples, the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. What was the seat of Moses? It's the seat that Moses had outside of the camp that people came to him trying to figure out how to deal with the Torah where they didn't have a clear understanding or application or maybe a new way. We don't know. Can we do this? Can we not do this? We had an argument. We're, we know you, we're just not sure what's the right way to do it. Moses was sitting in the seat, and we remember that in the story. He was sitting from sunrise to sunset in that seat, deciding between people, and it was his uh, father-in-law that came in and said, this is not good. Not good for you and not good for the people. And instructed him, teach people, break them into groups, find captains and leaders, hundred or whatever, and teach them the principles of Torah, so they can help bear this with you. And only the hard cases they bring to you. So you don't have to do this all day long. You know, a thrust for plurality of leadership. So it doesn't sit on one person. But the Pharisees understood that they had that seat. That they could make decisions of what the way you're to live. What you do and what you're not to do. This is binding and loosing. But Yeshua comes along and says to his disciples, after acknowledging earlier that the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, he warns the Pharisees that it will be taken away from them and given to another. And he comes to his disciples and he says, hey, I'm giving you the keys. And whatever you bound on earth shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loose in, in heaven. And we see this in Acts when the disciples have to make a decision concerning what to do with the Gentiles coming into the body of Messiah. They don't run across the street. We need to talk to the Sanhedrin right now. We got an issue here. Yeah, yeah, we're those crazy Jews who believe Yeshua is the Messiah. We got an issue. The Gentiles are coming in, and we need you guys, since you sit in the seat of Moses, make a decision. No, they didn't recognize that anymore. They recognized they had the authority to bind and loose the requirements, and they exercised that and made a decision. And so... As a Messianic community, though we have a sweet, soft part in our heart to the larger Jewish community, we do understand that the authority to make decisions for our community rests within, not without. We have that authority. It's a very important authority. A couple other things. Things to remember. 
and dealing with the book of Galatians, which we're going to just scratch the surface of today, as you see. Things to remember. Number one, we are 2,000 years removed from when this letter was written. Let me say it again. We're 2,000 years removed from when this letter was written. Therefore, we have to endeavor to have some understanding of the players and the culture of that time. We got to remember that. That takes a little study, research. You say, well, why is that important? Because if we don't know the players and the culture, then you will try to interpret things 2,000 years removed and how we use terminology today. There are things we hear today that wouldn't have been said in those days. Here's one. This is a little simple one. And I hear it all the time, and it gets me angry when I hear it whether from different communities. Jews don't believe in Jesus. How many believe that? Obviously, the Jewish people in here don't believe that. But it's a statement that's said all the time, whether it comes from the church world or whether it comes from the larger Jewish world. Jews don't believe in Jesus. Really? Then who were all those 12 disciples following him around all that time? Who were those people when the Holy Spirit was pulled out on Shavuot, a Jewish Moed? Who were those 3,000 that were added in that one day? Who were the apostles? And why did they have this huge meeting in Acts 15 to discuss the Goyim coming into this movement of Jewish people? If Jews don't believe in Jesus. Who wrote the New Testament anyway? Oh, Jewish people. That sounds like a small thing. Oh, you're making a fine point. Yeah, I am. Because the philosophy of the day, I hear it all the time. I hear it from anti-missionaries. You know, they just write, well, you know, you know, this, this, these messianic groups, these Jews for Jesus, all these guys, they, they are, they're, they're muddying the issue between Christianity and Judaism because Jews don't believe in Jesus. And that's not true. It's not true at all. So we have to realize that. That when you approach this book of Galatians, we got to dig through 2,000 years and try to understand what was going on to have a good understanding, interpretation. Second thing to remember, Paul was raised as a Pharisee and in one place still considered himself to be one. So I am a Pharisee. He was not a fisherman. Or they, or as the other disciples were, kind of common Jewish people. He was a very learned Jewish man, raised a Pharisee, very committed to Torah, the study of Torah, of course, from the oral tradition that later became the Talmud. That is how he would have been raised. So he would look, he would look through traditions of the elders. He would look to Torah through the practices that were being taught to him through oral tradition. But make no mistake about it, he spent a lot of energy and a lot of time studying. And not only Jewish traditions did he study, but he was a very learned man in Greek culture. We know this from the book of Acts when he goes to talk at Mars Hill and he says to them, as your poets say, they say this, How do you know that? Well, he studied the Greek poets. He spoke Greek. He spoke Hebrew. 
He was a very learned man. He had his Roman citizenship. Very educated person. It's nice to be around very educated people. We get excited. We, we think of people who are very educated today. We like, we like a lot. You know, we, when we hear them, when they approach things, you know, like a Dr. Michael Brown, you know, like, oh man, this guy. A Dan Juster, very educated man. Just what he's able to bring forth in history and knowledge. We respect that. We really do. It's important. We need to say this about Paul because Paul, especially being trained in the rabbinical tradition of the oral law, Paul didn't discard it all. He used it. He knew the terminology that was used among the people that he was talking to. And he used that terminology knowing that the people he was talking to understood those things. Now, we don't always understand those things. That's why we have to study. He uses terms like works of law, under the law. It meant something. Maybe not what we think it means, but it meant something. And we have to understand it within that thrust and culture. And there are people who are doing some laboring work today. One guy is by the name of Mark Nanos, who's done some amazing amount of study into some of these things and bringing out some things that a lot of people are not aware of. But we want to remember that. The other thing is we've got to remember Second Peter, third chapter, verse 15 and 16. Peter warns, hey, watch out. There are people who are coming who will twist the teaching, especially the teaching of our brother Paul, who some of the things he writes are hard to understand, which people wrestle to their own destruction. Paul's not a surface writer. He's not a, excuse me how I'm going to say this, he's not a, Jesus love me, this I know because the Bible tell me so. That's good to know that. But he's going to get underneath that deeply of what that means and all the terminology and understanding of that. So keep that in mind when we approach this book. Because it will have impact on us. These are all the frameworks in preparing for this book. Don't forget, here's the third thing. Don't forget in other places in scripture what Paul has to say about the law. Because we're going to hear some things in Galatians that on the surface is going to sound one way. But if you remember other things he said about it, it will make you take pause and say, hold it. He can't mean that because that would contradict what he says over here. Let me give you some of them. Romans 3, 31. Do we make void the Torah through faith? On the contrary, by faith we establish up, uphold the Torah. Keep that in mind. That truth has to be the truth no matter what he's writing on. 2 Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is God-breathed. What was all scripture at the time this was written? The Torah, the Tanakh. The Tanakh, the Torah is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for conviction, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, 
fully equipped for every good work. Maybe some of our brothers and sisters are not complete because they have rejected two-thirds of the Bible and said it's been done away with and has no value today and they cast it aside and they're wondering why they are not complete. Because they're rejecting the God-breathed, inspired word of God by traditions of men. They say Yeshua did away with all of that. Romans 7, 12. The law is indeed holy. The commandment holy, righteous, and good. In another place in Romans 10, the word is near us, even in our mouths that we may do it. The word of faith that I preach. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. They said, who's going to go across to get the Torah? It's not across the sea. It's not on the mountain. Where's the Torah? The Torah is in your mouth that you might do it. Paul believed in a doing type of faith, not a hearing only. Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life in Messiah. That through that, so that we might fulfill the righteous requirements of Torah. Keep that in mind as we go through Galatians. Romans 7.22, for I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. If the law is so bad and cursed and done away with, why would you delight in something that was cursed? Personally, I'm not going to delight in anything that's cursed. I'm going to get rid of it. Acts 25.8, why he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Even the law of the Jews. He said, I haven't offended. Keep that in mind. First Timothy 1a, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Keep that in mind. Keep in mind as we go through Galatians, Matthew, what Yeshua had to say. Matthew 5.17, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. The word literally means to fill to the fullest, to bring the fullest understanding and meaning. You do not fulfill something by breaking it. You fulfill it by bringing its full intent and measure of the one who gave the commandment. That's how you fulfill God's law. Some people say, well, now that he's fulfilled it. I said, oh, so you think now that he's fulfilled it because people's interpretation has fulfilled it. He did it, so now you don't have to. So Yeshua came to fulfill the law so that you could break the law. Isn't that something weird about that? No, he fulfilled the law in the sense of bringing the full understanding and application and meaning of it. He says, not one jot or tittle shall depart. He says, he who teaches against the commandments shall be least in the kingdom of God. He who teaches least. He will be the least if he teaches against the commandment. So keep those things in mind. Every once in a while I'll remind you about it. Because if you have those as a foundational statement, when you go into Galatia, right away when you get to a verse that seemingly says the commandments are bad and been done away with and they're cursed, you're going to take pause. You're going to hold on now. If I'm walking by faith, I'm to uphold the law. If I believe the law is a curse, then I'm going to uphold a curse. I don't think that's what it means when it says about being a curse or the works of the law. Keep that in your mind. So Galatians. We'll just get through a little bit of Galatians today. 
It was written around 48 AD, probably before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where they had to make a decision of what to do with the Gentiles. And the reason why we say that, people have different opinions about that, but the reason why I hold to that is that all Paul had to do in dealing with Galatians is say, don't you know the decision we made? We wrote the letter to you, what are you doing? But he doesn't do that. So it's believed that a lot of this took place before that. And also the issue related to that. Um, in Galatia, their community were mostly... Gentiles. They were Gentiles who had settled in the area, immigrated to the area around 270 BC among the Gauls, the Celts, and they moved to that area. And it's to that community that you sh- that Paul goes and he brings the message. And they establish this community, they win them to the Lord. And so it's to that community that most of the people in Galatians Paul is dealing with are not Jewish people, but are Gentiles. Non-Jews who have embrace Yeshua as the Messiah. And he's dealing with that. So let's quickly get there. Galatians. Paul, apostle, not from men or through man, but through Yeshua the Messiah and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with him, with me, Apostle, the word apostle means to be sent. Paul is saying, I'm sent. I was sent out. I didn't do this on my own. I didn't do it by my own desire. I didn't make myself an apostle. I didn't decide to build my own ministry. I was sent to you. Okay? And he makes it very clear that his sending was not from men or through man. Now he's thinking something because... His earliest being sent was through the Jerusalem council, not of the believers in Yeshua, but the Sanhedrin, who gave him letters to go out and find Jewish believers in Yeshua and bring them back and have them killed. So he'd been sent out before with official letters titled. But now he's saying this sending to you guys is not from man, nor through man, but through Yeshua, the Messiah. Not just anybody. He wasn't going to boast on Gamaliel that he trained under. He's boasting now in Yeshua, the anointed one, the Messiah. And God, the Father, who raised Yeshua from the dead. This is the foundation of my coming to you. That I'm here to tell you, and this is so important we get this, I'm here to put my emphasis on Yeshua. That by his authority, I am here to preach to you. By his authority, I'm here to proclaim. And he's the one that was raised from the dead. This is very crucial. We should never play down this. We should never make Yeshua simply an educated person who's a nice Jew who who was nice and learn it. No, he is the Jew that was raised from the dead. He is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one. We should never let anybody strip that off of Yeshua. Once you take that away from Yeshua, he's just another Jewish guy. When he realized that he's the Messiah, the hope of Israel, 
The one who brings the kingdom of God. The one who's representative of the kingdom of God to Israel. And you recognize that. That he's the one that sent me. And my whole life has centered around the fact that he was raised from the dead by the Father. It's important. These are not words. Paul's just not trying to be cute here. And have a nice opening. Hmm, how do I start this letter off? Oh, to the brothers and saints. that is No. Words are very important to Paul. He doesn't mince with words. He wants them to understand. These Galatians. He wants them to understand by what authority he came to them. And all the brethren who are with me. And some modern, modern translations trying to be politically correct says all the brothers and sisters who are with me. But most translations don't say that. Actually, the word there doesn't mean brothers and sisters. It means brothers. Well, Paul didn't travel alone. Paul had an apostolic team. He had an apostolic team of brothers who were ministering. And, and they have ministered to Galatia. And they moved on to other places. And he says, it's not only me writing to you, but the whole team. We're writing to you. The apostolic team is writing and establishing what we're about to say to you. It's not just Paul. It's all the brethren that are with me. They're with me. They're aligned with me. They are committed to this gospel that I'm preaching. And they're writing this as well. Grace to you. And peace from God the Father. And our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Grace and peace. Grace being that unmerited favor. That works in your life not only to bring forgiveness, but to empower you to do the things that God has called you to do. Peace is to come to completion and fullness. The word shalom means to be complete. When you're not complete, you don't have shalom because something's missing. So he's saying the grace of God that will empower you, not only for forgiveness, but empower you to walk in the ways of God. That's God's grace. And his fullness, shalom, that completes you. I speak that over you. It's just like when we say Shabbat Shalom. It's very powerful. Simple phrase, but very powerful words. From God the Father and our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, who gave himself for our sins. Don't miss the emphasis of this. He's talking, he's not talking to people that he hasn't talked to before. He's talked to them before. He's given them the gospel and he's laying that foundation once again that Yeshua, who gave himself for our sins, He's the one that completes you. He's the one that makes you right before the Father. Don't lose sight of that. It's something I, I, even as in being in the Messianic Jewish movement, we need to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes people can get lost in their study of Torah and take Yeshua and say, we don't need him. We have Torah, we don't need Yeshua. And forget that he's the living Torah that became flesh. And without the living Torah that became flesh, that, that lights the light of every man that comes into the world, the living Torah that gives life to you, 
who died for you so you would be forgiven, if you try to approach the Torah apart from that, you will find yourself ending up in error. This is why I say it's important to approach it through new covenant eyes. Because that's where the grace is. That's where we see the fullness of that manifest. Not that there wasn't grace before. There's always been grace. Grace was always available. Just people didn't always walk in it. It was there with Moses. Moses made it very clear. It's not across the sea. That's grace, man. It's not up on the mountain that you have to go up and get it. That's grace. He's talking grace. He's talking grace and he's talking faith. Where is it? It's near you. In your mouth that you may do it. These are grace and faith all over that. He calls it in Romans the word of faith. Too bad some people have run with it and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's reminding them that Yeshua came to deliver you from this present evil age. This is what this is all about. I marvel. I'm astonished. I'm amazed, not in a good way, but in a sad way, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Mashiach to a different gospel. Now he's given us, after all the greeting, after all the things of being delivered, after all the stuff that he speaks about, He's given the reason for why he's writing this letter. He has great concern. And his concern is one of astonishment. So how soon that you leaving what we gave you, and he says for a different gospel. The word gospel is where we get our word evangel. It means good news. To evangelize is to go forth and proclaim good news. The gospel is good news. It's a message that God has given us something he's going to do that he wants us to proclaim to others. And so there was a gospel, there was a good news that had been preached by Paul to these Galatians who were former pagans. And they had heard this good news. And now he says, I am shocked, astonished. Blown away that you are leaving, literally deserting him who called you to follow after a different good news. Which he later says is not even good news. Verse 2, but which is not another. He says it's not really good news. They may call it good news, but it's not. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the good news, the evangel of Mashiach. 
his message, his good news. They want to pervert it, and they're troubling you. They're causing confusion concerning the foundation that we came to you, my apostolic team, we first called you out of paganism into the light of God, to the Mashiach who would be a light to the world, and you've come into that. He says, now there are those coming in who are perverting that message. It's not good news at all. But he's shocked that they're running after it. Then he says, strong warnings here, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be a curse. That's deep. That's deep. You are, in a sense, a spiritual father to these people. You laid the foundation. They're looking to you for truth. And you've gone on. And you tell them, even... If we come back, the apostolic team, and bring another gospel than the foundation we gave you, let us be a curse. If we come back with a gospel message that's not aligned to what we've already given you, don't listen to us. There's a similar verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims a Yeshua other than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it way too easily. Wow. Don't listen to those people. Verse 9, we have said before, so I say to you again, if any man preach any other gospel, Unto you than the one you received. Let him be a curse. That's strong words. This is not a small issue for Paul, this Galatia. This wasn't about just simple external customs tradition. There's a, you know, I've given you a couple of words. I've given you the word uh, halakha. There's another word that's used, it's called minhak. Minhak means customs, it's not necessarily binding upon you. We all have customs. I'm sure if we investigated everybody's Shabbat meals, we will see different practices of how people bring in. We will see similarities. If we were to look at everybody's Passover table, we will see some elements that we have embraced through the ages that have been passed down through rabbinical Judaism that we see are still good, and so we still do it. It's been done for 2,000 years, and so we go, hey, this is good. Why reinvent the mode? We'll have some of that. But I'm sure there'll be some things in your home that will differ from the home down the street that's celebrating Passover. Maybe the songs you sing. Maybe the worship you give. Who knows? There will be customs that you have that others may not have. If you were to go visit another Messianic congregation, you may see customs that are not binding, but it's what they do for their community. Mike Rudolph and Mike Warner used to say, the rabbi is right in his own congregation for the traditions that are practiced. There is a certain authority that the leadership have that we can decide what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. 
That's very important. Keep that in mind. But this is not about the issue of the gospel. Paul's not dealing with customs. He's dealing with a serious issue that undermines the very faith of what it means to be a follower of Yeshua. Galatia is a serious book. It can't be dismissed simply saying, well, he just did away with Torah and that's all there is to it because there's too much said in Torah about rightfully studying his word, knowing his word, writing it in your heart. The very new covenant says, I will write my Torah on your heart. If the Torah is not a curse, he's writing a curse on our hearts? The people don't think this thing through when they make, they're just following a different gospel. And woe unto them for following a different gospel in any direction that it goes. For do, for do I now persuade men? Or God? Am I trying to please men or God? Or do I seek to please them, men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant, a doulos of Messiah. I'm a servant by choice. I was, could be free, but I chose to love my master, got the, got the ring in my ear, and I am now committed to serve him forever. Paul is defending his calling. He's not looking for the approval of men or seeking to please them. This is the accusation that we found in Corinth. They accused, they questioned Paul's motive as an apostle, even questioned that he was an apostle. And here he felt he had to address it. He addressed the accusation here that he was that they were saying he was seeking to please men and was seeking approval from men. His response is if he was seeking man's approval, he would not be a bondservant of Messiah. Because serving Messiah has brought him persecution, stonings, beatings, rejection from his community. He said, if I was seeking to please men, I wouldn't be following Messiah. So he's defending to the Galatians who may not know everything concerning Paul. And he's defending that the reason why he was not seeking to please men, because he is a bondservant to Yeshua. Verses 11 and onward, he is seeking to defend his apostleship. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by man is not according to man. Preached by me is not according to man. In other words, the good news I'm preaching you, and it's not my own, and it doesn't come from men. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. I'm not teaching men's traditions. I am teaching what I received. I'm not trying to please men. And he's establishing all of this because 
He established his community and now they're straying away from the message he's given them. By the way, concerning the revelation of Yeshua. When Yeshua asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, they are saying, you're one of the prophets. Maybe even John the Baptist. Those who were believing in some form of reincarnation or something. So he got an answer of what men were thinking. And then he got very personal, which is what God does. He says, Ben, who do you say that I am? He asked that to his disciples. Peter's the one that spoke up. He was always quick to speak up. He says, you are the Mashiach, the son of the living God. Yeshua turned to him. Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And upon this rock, the truth that Yeshua is the Mashiach, I will build my congregation, my community, my kihalot, my church. For those of us who believe in Yeshua, it's by revelation that you've come to that knowledge. You may think you figured it out. You may think that you were just a smart person. When I first read the New Testament writings, read it straight through when the Bible was given to me, I read all of that. What Yeshua did, his miracles, his signs. I was a very educated person. Very smart guy. And when I finished reading it, my eyes were still blinded to what I read. I tried to make Jesus a guru who had discovered how to manipulate the universe through the manipulation of the mind and being one with the body of ocean. So I had a philosophy, I had a tradition, and I tried to fit him into that. I was blinded to the truth. It wasn't until I surrendered before the Father and got on my knees and had enough conviction that I cried out for him to come and change me. And it's through that that revelation was imparted me that I knew that I knew, that I knew, that I knew, that I knew that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Paul says, I didn't receive it from man. I received it by revelation. It was revealed to me who he was, or who he is. He goes on, and let's finish this out. You have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted 
the kihilot, the church, the assembly of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. Being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And he would have been referring to the oral traditions. Talmud wasn't quite there yet. It was being passed orally. He was zealous for that. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. This is a phrase to say that this calling that God called him goes back to when he was a child. God had already planned it out. He knew about Paul. He knew about Paul before Paul was, when Paul was still just a gleam in his father's eye. He knew about him. And from his mother's room, Paul realized this calling on my life, God had already determined it. He had appointed the time. This is why I tell you that if you got somebody in your family that doesn't know the Lord, keep praying for them. Keep offering up those, that incense. At God's timing, he will bring it to pass. He says, and call me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Goyim, the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him there 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterwards, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Messiah. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us, now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Paul is established with the Galatians how he came to this calling to preach and lay the foundation. And some of the things affecting the Galatians, as we can see, were interpretations and understanding of the application of Torah. And Paul is letting them know, I know this. I'm a Pharisee. In fact, I knew it so well, it brought me to the place of trying to destroy Yeshua and his congregations. So I know what I'm talking about. And I'm not lying to you. So this is important that we understand this. This book of Galatians is not a secondary issue for anybody, but especially for Messianic Jewish congregations. This is why so many people have come to me and asked me, Pastor, will you teach on the book of Galatians? I have questions. Some people, I was answering questions, well, I found myself answering the same questions over and over again. That's okay, I got to teach it. We got to walk through it. I'm going to end, the worship team can decide to return. But I want to let you know where we're going with this. Our goal is to get through the whole book. 
I will take some detours. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I am going to take some detours. In fact, as the worship team goes up, I'm going to take a quick detour right now. Because one of the things that's important to us as a congregation that's positive towards Torah is that we have to give answers to people who confront us with saying, well, the scriptures teach against that. And I want to let you know that that's not the case. So I'm going to give you one real quickly, see if I can do this very quickly. I like the music, keep the music playing. My son usually does that to let me know it's time for me to quit, but I'm going to use it as a time to go for it. Very quickly. We'll just take one issue. How many of you ever been confronted? You're sitting at a family dinner or out with some people, and somebody's trying to give you a piece of ham. And you very politely say, no, thank you. Oh, no, it's good. It's my mother's recipe. It's it's one of the best pieces of ham that you can have. You go, no, thank you. Well, you got something against ham? Well, I don't have anything against ham per se. I have something for my God who has defined for me what is food and what's not food. And I don't consider ham to be food. I don't consider it to be an animal that God says you can eat. It's not kosher. We don't, I don't eat that. And then they go after you. And they want to know why. And they have verses. They go to Mark 7. And they go, in Mark 7, it says Yeshua's disciples were passing through the field and they took some grain and they were eating it. And the Pharisees got angry. Yeshua. Why do your disciples break the the traditions of the elders? Didn't say break Torah, but the tradition of the elders that that they don't wash their hands before eating. And they don't mean just for cleanliness, but it was spiritual cleanliness. It says the Pharisees believed that you became spiritually defiled unless you wash your hands a certain way. They had certain rituals and steps of how you wash your hands. Or else, even when you eat grains, which God allows you to eat, this, by the way, has nothing at all to do with meats. It's about grains. He said, the Pharisees taught you became spiritually defiled. Yeshua goes on and says, it's not what goes in the body that defiles a man and what comes out. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts and wickedness and these sort of things. These are the things that spiritually defile you. And then he makes this statement. He makes a statement about this food going in. And the literal translation says, this is verse 19 of Mark 7. Literal translation is purging all foods. Now some translations, like the NIV, the NAB, the RSV, say things like this. He declared all foods good. Or Amplified Bible says he was making and declaring all foods ceremonially clean. That is, he abolished the ceremonial distinction of the Levitical law. 
And that's how people interpret that in those translations. But I will submit to you, that's very poor translation. Especially ones that say, and Yeshua declared all foods clean, because if you get any Greek interlinear, you will not find the words Yeshua there at all, or he. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. So when people try to throw that in your face, you say, first of all, it's not talking about meats. Yeshua wasn't declaring what food is. Torah has already done that. Number two, the verse that you're pointing to in 19 does not even have the word Yeshua in the Greek text underneath. And that's any Greek manuscript. It's not there. It is implied by the translators who already decided that the words purging all meats or all foods must mean that Yeshua cleaned all food. So they throw the extra words in. Yeshua, or he, declared all foods clean. That's not even there. This is the one time that the KJV, King James Version, got it right. It just simply says the food enters in you, therefore purging all meats. Now, I have to get graphic to say what that's talking about. But purging all meats, all food, where does food go after you finish eating? It goes out of you. Purging, pushed out, gone. Yeshua is saying a very simple thing that everybody knew. When you eat food, it comes in and it goes out. Purging all meat. Pushing it all out. That's all he was saying. A very simple truth. He wasn't declaring foods clean. He was saying, no, look, when it goes in your body, it goes out of your body. It does not go in your heart and defile you. It does not make you unclean spiritually. See, People come with philosophies and traditions that have been passed down from one generation to another. And yet we have Peter, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, and many years have gone by, and he gets his vision of unclean animals and common animals and critters. And he's told by the vision, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, after all those years being Holy Spirit filled, speaking in tongues, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean in my life. If anybody understood that Yeshua says, hey, all foods are now available. You can eat anything you want, all meats, all animals, you can eat them all. Peter should have understood that. Some say, well, that's what he was, God was trying to explain to Peter in Acts 10 and 11. God was trying to tell him, that's what this, that's what I'm trying to tell you, that now you can eat anything you want to. I am glad that Peter was a wiser man than some of the preachers out there today. Because the scripture says in Acts 10 that Peter pondered in his heart, what does this mean? And then this angel said, somebody's coming. Guy by, coming from Cornelius' house. When they come, go with them. His Gentile shows up. 
Jewish people kept their distance from Gentiles. Gentiles did some unclean things. They didn't want to even have table fellowship with them. They may become spiritually defiled. But the Spirit said, go with them. So he goes with them, and he gets to Cornelius' house. And when he walks in, he sees all these Gentiles. And he said, an angel came to us. And there's this angel came to me and said, go ask for Peter. and Have him come and give a message. He has something to say to you. And Peter sees it. And he starts to describe Yeshua. And he says, God has made it clear to me that the Gentiles who were considered common and unclean, that God was making them clean. How did Peter know this? Because he pours the Holy Spirit upon them while, they're, while he's preaching. God pulls the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues. And Peter's going, how did the Gentiles get our, the tongues that are promised to the Jewish people? How do they get the Holy Spirit that's promised to the Jewish people? And yet they have it. They haven't converted. They haven't become proselytes to Judaism. They haven't become Jews. They are still Gentiles. And yet the Spirit of God is moving through them. And Peter understands now the vision. It had nothing at all to do with food. It was all about that God was saying, I'm now bringing the Gentiles in. I'm making them clean. I'm making them holy. So these verses that people will use against you to say that God has done away with these things and you guys are making up traditions, it's not the case. We don't do what we do simply because we're trying to be Jewish. We don't do what we do to put on a a facade so we can trick the Jewish community into being a part of us. No, we're not ashamed of the good news of Yeshua, the Messiah. He's out front that we believe he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we're not trying to trick anyone. We are very bold about the message. But we believe when it comes to the halakha, the way we live, that the things that we choose to walk in, to be faithful to, is because we see it in the scriptures. And we embrace it. And it might go in opposition to the larger body of Messiah at times. But that's okay. We love them anyway. If we have an opportunity to discuss these things with them, we will do it. But I can assure you that the things we do, we have an answer. As I said, I'm following that one pastor. I want to see what he's going to say. He's teaching a message. Why do we do what we do for his congregation? He's got a huge congregation. It's big. Big, gigantic one. Thousands and thousands of members. And I just want to see where he's going to go with it. Will he really answer that question? Why do we do what we do? I can assure you that I have about Yeshua that the elders can tell you why we do what we do. And Everything we do has biblical principles to it of why we do what we do. And if they don't, then they're neutral things. They're neutral things. Thank you, Lord. Father, I just pray that you would help us as we approach this book of Galatia, this epistle that your servant Paul, by the inspiration of your spirit, wrote concern that there were believers 
who he had led to faith, that you sent to these Gentiles, were now departing from the good news of Messiah. Help us, Lord, to understand what the gospel is. Help us to understand what the other gospel that's not really a gospel is. That we can avoid the other gospel and cling to the gospel of Messiah. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Listen for Bill Clouds on Solace Radio. 